0: This is Nate Hansen And Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com.
1: Alright, we're back. Do so you remember
0: at all what we were talking about last time? Something about, like, holiness is contagious, but impurity is also contagious, and how... Yeah, that's how the whole thing spreads. Um, But yeah, we're talking about like kind of like the sacrificial system and the priests and why there was like the holy of holies and the temple and the you know the different, I guess, different circles around that of separation from the most holy place and all this stuff. And you're presenting this this other case for what we should actually be seeing here.
1: Yeah, and just to. To rehash, we'll probably repeat this all the time, a uh, part of what we're doing is is going back to the, the texts of the Torah, and then we'll spend a lot more time in the New Testament coming up uh, to show that the main story, the story of the Hebrew Bible, and, and then the story that the New Testament is claiming Jesus was the, the climax of, is a story about God wanting to be with humanity— there being this distance and separation thing, there's this obstacle uh, separating God and humanity, and God wants to be reunited, and that the entire Levitical system was the mechanism, uh, the the means of accomplishing that closeness, that proximity between God and humanity. And that is what we're going to make a case. That thing, that uh, accomplishing proximity, allowing God to be very close to human beings, allowing the high priest to not only enter the tabernacle but even go behind the the deepest innermost curtain into the holy of Holies right? That kind of closeness that that's the thing that Jesus accomplished according to the New Testament. Uh, so the whole reason uh, that the New Testament writers will later claim that the the law, has now been made obsolete even though Jesus clarified multiple times that he didn't come to abolish the law was because Jesus did the very same thing, which those protocols, remember we kind of liken them to a nuclear reactor and the protocols of how to run a nuclear reactor. The reason for this system was to bring God, God close to humanity. That is the same thing that Jesus accomplished. And then what we'll get into is part of what the language around Jesus's death and Jesus blood and atonement is language talking about how Jesus has now made the entire world ready and prepared to be close to God. So that's the big picture, or then we're trying to do down is drill in on some of the, some of the details and some of what we'll see. i I think what we're going to be a little surprised at first, but I'm going to keep using language like science. Um, you know, we've talked a little bit in past episodes of how much tension there is as modern Christians between the kind of science that we have today, the things that we have learned right through scientific observation and that seem to not jive with parts of the Bible, right? The age of the earth, for example. Yep. Um, and we've talked about how it just is, it's lacking integrity and makes us feel crazy to try to pretend there isn't that difference at times, right? Between science and, and the scripture. Uh, but what we're going to see is that actually everybody writing texts that are in the Bible was writing from their own scientific views. And there was never a time or place in human history where, where there wasn't a predominant science in terms of what people thought about how the world around them worked. And much of why I think we've misunderstood Christianity, especially around atonement, is we haven't understood the science underlying uh, the entire Levitical system, the science underlying the Torah. uh, And then we haven't understood how the New Testament writers were in agreement with that science saying that Jesus was doing things according to scientific principles that we've never even heard of.
0: Okay. Okay. So give me that. So give me some of that, that science of the, you know, the biblical writers that they would be in agreement with, because this seems like an area where this is where everything is missing, you know, like this is where we're missing and where we would just take something that we read in, let's say the Old Testament or some of these passages and just assume they're talking or they're... Even if we're trying to read it like in context of what's going on around it in the story. Because that's a big thing, right? Reading in context, reading in context. Everyone wants to do that. But you're bringing up like a whole different piece here. It's like understanding not just their worldview, but the science. Like what they actually believe about the way the world works. Not just the worldview, but how the world works scientifically. That I think is really, really important. And yeah, so I want you to get into that a little bit. Like what, what actual... Like what scientific things are we talking about here?
1: Right. So the, f- the first one that we've already mentioned uh, is is this s- simple but foreign to most of us idea that God and humanity cannot simply come into contact with each other, right? So part of why, uh, you know, to me, I've, I've been swimming in this stuff so long, that's, that's just obvious. But there was a time not too long ago where I was completely uh, unfamiliar, had never even heard... That idea. The reason that is, is because it was so well assumed by the biblical writers, especially those of the Torah and their audience, that they never felt like they even had to stop and explain that. So, the way we've had to go learn that, figure that out, is is sort of like doing good journalistic work or detective work. It's finding clues and then working back behind the text to to sort of piece things together. This is actually where modern research, uh, there's a whole category of biblical scholarship called, you know, essentially, there's a whole category of biblical scholarship that is doing comparative literature. We have all these other texts from other ancient cultures that we've dug up in the ground and learned how to translate. And now we get to compare the Bible or other texts from Judaism or Christianity, we get to compare those to other cultures texts, right? So that's where you see, oh, there was another uh, Babylonian culture had their own flood myth, right? right? We didn't know that before, and we've learned that because we dug up these texts. Uh, and that's been one way where where some of these hidden assumptions have sort of started to come to the surface. And to me, it's one of the most exciting parts of of studying the Bible really intensely, is if you if you think you see something, the way that I've learned to, to do research is to then apply it, put it on as a lens, and go read the text and see if it works, yeah. right? Sort of like trial and error, see if it fits the data. Sometimes it, it doesn't, but when it does, it's really exciting. So like that one, God and man can't touch each other, they want to be close. God wants to be close with humanity. Humanity wants to be close with God. They can't just touch. They can't be close.
0: I would imagine you would draw a lot of that from like the, the Genesis 1 and 2 story, right? Like the, the quote-unquote fall, right? Like you're seeing some of that right there. Uh, so we talked about that. We talked about it in a
1: past episode. I actually think if you start there, you end up being misled. Um, because what those texts are doing is so symbolic, the Genesis 1 and 2 things. We've talked about—they're doing 18 things at once, right? (laughs) They're just—it's such a complex web of of symbolism. I actually think starting in the Levitical system is the easiest way to see it, and actually the Exodus texts that talk about Moses and the Israelites coming close to God on Sinai— are some of the most clear indicators. So we talked about the one where Moses approaches the burning bush and and God tells him, stop, don't come any closer and take off your sandals, right? So if you have a lens in which you're thinking there's a common assumption we can't just, a man can't just walk up to God on a mountain and a, and a dirty, wandering man cannot just bring his his dirty self into a a holy cosmic space, like a cosmic mountain, God's abode. If we have that assumption, we read that story and we're like, oh yeah, okay, so what we're seeing here is a theophany in which a human being just encountered God. And those texts, the, the statement, take off your sandals for this is holy ground and don't come any closer, those are statements that the writer has made, assuming we know humans can't just come close to God and humans have to take care of defilement. Right. And it's triggering to us, based on those assumptions, this is a scene in which humanity and God are very, very close. Watch what happens, right? Or we talked about the uh, the vision uh, in the beginning of Isaiah, in chapter 6 of Isaiah, where Isaiah... Has this vision where he wakes up and he's in the th- the throne room of God, likened to the inner holy of holies, or actually could be the the actual throne room in heaven, uh, according to the view. And his first reaction is, "Oh my gosh, I'm going to die because I'm dirty, I'm defiled, right? It's that I'm a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips." This is like. Tapping into the shared assumption that we're all just supposed to know, which is that it's very dangerous for a person to just come come very close to God. If that person is defiled and comes close to God,
0: there's no chance, right? Uh, Did they have actual evidence of someone just dying? Like, that's what I want to know. Is there like historical evidence of someone like dying or is this just kind of like a made up system that they all believed? But didn't have like actual evidence of. Like, was there a time in history, Tim? Do you believe there was a time in history if you wind the the Delorean back, uh, the where there were someone came into the into contact with a divine being and and died, or is this something that they were just like kind of a more figurative way they're talking about everything? Did they did they have did they have a real reason to be concerned and and afraid?
1: Well okay, so I think you're asking a few questions. I think what happened in the past is a is a fruitless <laughs> question. Um, <laughs> if If you're talking, which we have, and I think we're going to continue doing just on an emotional level, for us today, how am I actually thinking about this? To be totally honest, and, and I've been in the middle of of working on, you know, compiling all my research here. I've been swimming in this stuff intensely. I'm 99% this isn't affecting the way I view my life and my world whatsoever. I'm just tracing the evidence. I'm just trying to figure out what these people believed. The fact of it, most of these ideas, the things I'm going to call science, was shared unanimously by every ancient Near Eastern culture we know of. And each one would have little tweaks, right? So temples that were built, like we said, on mountains and as mountains in order to recreate cosmic space, were a universal feature of of ancient cultures. And the belief that you had to cleanse those temples and use substances like oil and blood— to make it possible for God to be in that temple and for humans to come close to God was again shared by almost every culture we know of anywhere near Israel. So to me, it's like, okay, these were the ways humanity was thinking about things. Okay, every this was... Not science in the sense of what we think of science, but it was
0: science. So it's similar to like they th- also thought the earth was flat, whether that influences your theology and view of God. Basically, there's, there's other ideas that they had about the way the world was scientifically that weren't true as we understand today. Maybe we'll discover in, we're not going to discover that the earth isn't flat, but there's might be things we discover that we think we know now that aren't actually true in a thousand years or whatever. Correct. But they had other ideas as well that weren't in relation to approaching a divine being. That we've all just gone, oh yeah, that was just you know people that they didn't know they they we've discovered that later on as we've progressed. You're just analyzing the the science around approaching a divine being, which does trickle out into other things that aren't just about approaching divine beings. But that's does that is that sort of. A good kind of summary Well yeah and I, th- I think what we'll see is like this will be really exciting
1: and and troubling because so the idea of atonement, uh, which I've said that word itself is just loaded and misleading, Keper in the Hebrew, which roughly means to to cover something, the whole idea of that which the New Testament takes and says Jesus did lots of that for us, is based on science that we don't believe. And some of us are going to to go through that, see what the ancient Israelites believed, see what the the beliefs the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament are founded upon, and feel like, okay, I need to try to believe those things too. Uh, Others of us are, are going to go, oh, okay, I get it, I see that. Now I see it wasn't this, it was that, but I can't actually convince myself to believe that. So therefore, what am I going to do with, for instance, the gospel, which is built on a science that I can't wrap my head around?
0: I think a lot of people, especially listeners of the show, are in that second group that you just mentioned where it's like, you know, I I get this. I see where you guys are going with this. I, I I see this. I think this is right. I think this is true to what the biblical writers actually believed and what the people of that time believed. But I, we don't believe that. And so then what? And so I think a lot of people then go into this like, well, I'm going to remain a Christian because I'm going to, I can settle with the, the way of Jesus, the, the life he lived, the ideas he had about loving people and going to the least and the disenfranchised and the, those cast out by society and loving them. That's a beautiful way to live even if I, I don't, you know, get to all these other things that maybe the Old Testament writers believed. Um, and even if I don't believe that, uh, old interpretation of the gospel that maybe I used to believe I can get there with Jesus. And so I'll remain a Christian and just be like a Jesus Christian kind of person, like try to, you know, you see this a lot right now, like try to just kind of live how Jesus lived. Um, but you know i think what you're saying is there's a lot more going on there and i guess what i'm asking and what i want to know for myself personally selfishly and for all of these i think listeners and um and others how do you know where does this uh where does this land what does this change is there something more than what i just laid out that we can hold on to or or is that sort of the way to um remain a Christian. And when I say remain a Christian, I guess I mean like be able to relate to other Christians out there, like on some sort of common ground. Is that sort of the only way of like, yeah, I, you know, I also think like Jesus lived a beautiful life and that's how I want to emulate. That's what I want to emulate too. Like, is there some other, that was again, a lot of questions in one. Do you have anything on that?
1: Yeah. Let's just, let's just try one. Let's get into an, another piece of science, which my guess is you are are not going to be able to convince yourself is is a true fact of the world, but that the entire story of the, the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament Christianity is is based on, uh, we're just going to have to see that and deal with it. And, and let's just use this as a case study. But what my prediction is, is I've said this before, Part of why I've been excited about this series, I felt this with other series, so much of the the nastiest, most toxic parts of Christianity that you and I and so many others have wanted to get away from and be willing to finally call toxic, right? Say these ideas don't work. These ideas have hurt people. So many of those ideas are actually foreign to the text. And they, they have been born... Out of ignorance of how different the biblical writers' background views, their science of the world, their worldview, how different theirs was than whoever the interpreters that are coming to the text, what what their worldview was. So, for instance, the whole idea of of atonement as wrath appeasement was artificially placed— on the texts from people who didn't understand what the Levitical system was actually doing. So what we're going to see is the view and picture of God and what kind of story about God the texts are telling will be, for many of us, far more beautiful than, than what we've seen before and will make us want to believe these stories more than we yet ever have. And we will at the same time come to realize that they were, the stories themselves, the views of the authors contained bits of belief that we just simply won't be able to believe in. So it's this tension that I don't know that we're going to get out of. I think we're going to get into deeper and deeper pools of it where the picture becomes more and more beautiful, but what faith and belief and what what our relationship with these texts are is going to have to fundamentally change a little bit, but it's, it's, I'm not excited about this because it's just like, Oh, it's new for the sake of newness. It's new and better. Like I I can promise you, (laughs) I can promise you that, Uh, but it's going to be better and weirder or better and more foreign, uh, better and more unbelievable. And that's just, to me, it's worth the risk, right? It's worth the risk of doubt to, to see something truer and, and more beautiful. But it is going to take experiencing that doubt to get there.
0: You know, it's doubt, and I think, Different people are, are you know, have different spectrums of how comfortable they are with doubt. Uh, but I think anyone listening to the show is pretty comfortable with doubt, and has probably already gone on quite a voyage um, with doubt and down a slippery slope, which we think is an awesome slope to slip down. <laughs> but um, there's another piece, you know, like I was kind of mentioning with that having common ground with other "quote unquote" Christians or whatever we're calling ourselves when you start believing some of this stuff, you can't really have conversations anymore. And we've talked about this a lot on the show, but you know, I, I just, I know some of the places you're, you're probably going to be going with this and saying it's more beautiful. And I agree. It's more beautiful, but I mean, we've had people write in about this, like to have to send someone like 80 podcasts and 20 books. I mean, just to catch them up on, you know, what you're talking about or where you're going, and then at the end of all that, to have them go, I don't know, that sounds pretty crazy. Like it just felt, it's very discouraging if you're trying to continue to call yourself a Christian and have any kind of common ground with anyone. And some people don't call themselves a Christian because they know that this isn't an accepted form of Christianity, which I I respect that as well. But yeah, I, that, that's not really a question. It's just sort of a statement, I guess. If you're listening and you are feeling that, like. I think a lot of us feel it. The handful of people I still want to communicate with or talk to, I don't know how to have a conversation because I don't know how to get them there on all this stuff. So I guess that's what I mean, Tim. Like, if you're able to land this in some way to where we could put it on a t shirt, no, I'm kidding, but we can have something to hold on to that is, you're saying, better, more beautiful. Um, and, and something that we can still say, like, I, I really believe this is what Christianity is or what the, what the biblical writers were trying to get across. And I think it's more beautiful. Are you going to give us that, Tim? I will try. Uh, so, so let's jump in, but let me
1: just respond. It, it may take 80 or a hundred podcasts, uh, to, to completely reframe all of what the New Testament is saying Jesus accomplished. That may be true, but do you know how many sermons you have to hear before Calvinism seems like a good idea? (laughs) Quite a few. (laughs) (laughs) Like, the point is, we've all been so indoctrinated, right? Like, so heavily inundated uh, with ideas. And so the hardest part is subtraction. Like, backing out of ideas that we've been told are biblical— uh, biblical interpretations, right? Backing those out, and, and backing our own, uh, you know, interpretive biases out to try to figure out w- what somebody was thinking when they were writing 2,500 years ago. It's a very difficult, uh, very difficult undertaking. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called "I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist." I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Oh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. He mm, works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) But it's not like anybody out there is like just enjoying this simple, neutral, you know, easy christianity <laughs> like the point is that especially for you and your friends and, and this is coming off of thanksgiving so this is clearly impacting uh this conversation i was like <laughs> texting tim throughout
0: the thanksgiving experience like i can't believe what i just heard i can't believe this i can't believe that and he, i told him like no response necessary i'm just gonna use this as like event event thread for my experience, but yeah, anyways, yeah, it is. That, that, that is part of it. And I think a lot of us just had those experiences at Thanksgiving, whether it's politics or, uh, religion, theology, where if you're anything like me and not like Tim, just kidding, you just, you kind of just close your mouth and sit there with kind of raised eyebrows. Like, I don't even know. I don't even know what the entry point into a discussion is because we're, we're, we're actually talking about, completely different uh, religions, completely different spiritual texts. We might as well be, right? it's the actual, it's the same text, it's the same book, but we might as well be talking about completely different ones because we're coming from such widely different places.
1: Okay. Listener question. Hi, Nate and Tim. This is Colin from Minneapolis. I really enjoyed this series and I had a question about blood. You said it was like some other substances which had both physical and spiritual aspects that allowed both God and humans to come in contact with it. I think you said that smoke was part meat and part air or part physical and part spiritual. What is it about blood that makes it useful as an intermediary between God and humans? Does it also have a dual nature like the explanation for smoke? Thanks and keep up the great work. Thanks Colin. Good question. I sometimes forget that we haven't spent 10 minutes to, Clarify this on the podcast. Nate, have you and I ever talked about blood and breath and life?
0: Mm, not sure. I feel like we've talked a little bit about blood, maybe even on the sh- on the podcast in these last few episodes, but I don't think we've really gotten deep into it. Okay. So, blood is,
1: according to the biblical texts, the most valuable substance in the world. And the reason that the Levitical system this quote sacrificial system the reason animals were killed in order to sprinkle blood on the tabernacle or on the priests or sometimes on people who needed to be cleansed was because was because blood had a special power and the reason that blood was considered to have had a special power was because of the science of blood of the day. And Leviticus 17, specifically verse 11, goes out of its way to explain this overtly to us, to, to state it. Uh, but translation issues, the fact that the idea is foreign to us and we haven't thought too well about this, I think has made a lot of people miss it. Um, We'll start there and then we'll go back to Genesis and sort of work out what the heck (laughs) this idea is getting at. But in the middle of Leviticus, central chapter and following Yom Kippur, the, the day of, we call it the day of atonement, the day of Kippur, the day of covering, this annual ceremony where blood was applied in the tabernacle, so one animal was killed and that blood was was sprinkled on all of the objects that would have existed in between humans and God in the holy of holies. And then in the only ritual of all of the sacrificial system that had anything to do with taking away sin there was a second goat which symbolically carried away the nation sins out into the wilderness. Is that the scapegoat? That's what we've called it. Yeah, uh, which may or may not be a, a good term for it. We'll get that into that another time. But yes, that's what has typically been referred to as the scapegoat. Part of what we'll see is that 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 was how sin was handled. Blood was not about sin. It definitely wasn't about paying a price to God. Blood was a substance with an especially powerful property of insulation. What we've talked about is, as I think the the predominant meaning of caper in most places, what atonement usually means is something like covering for the sake of insulation. So, We mentioned briefly last time, there are multiple substances that could be used. And the closer you got to God, the more of those substances you needed. So the priests, what they would do, if they were really going to go deep on that one day of the year on Yom Kippur, where they would have to go all the way to the back of the tabernacle to clean everything or to cover everything with blood, they would have to fully insulate themselves. So they took a bath— to get clean first. Then they put on this whole special outfit of clothes that literally said holy to the Lord on the head, which was to, make, to insulate them and make them more holy. Then they anointed themselves with this special blend of oil and spices that was called holy oil that was supposed to cover them even further. And then they would cover themselves with some blood. Essentially, you have this compounding or compiling uh, layers of insulation, right? It's like on a really cold day in winter, I wear a shirt, a sweater, and a jacket. They're just adding layers and layers and layers to protect themselves from closer and closer contact. And the reason that that sacrifice, offerings, killing animals— and then spreading blood on things before you ate the majority of the animal, the reason that was a staple is because blood was considered to have an especially insulating property because it contained a mixture of the divine and human substances. So Leviticus 17.11, right after introducing the day of of Yom Kippur, says... I'll read the NIV first, and then I'm going to correct it with something I think closer to uh, an appropriate translation. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement, or to compare, yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. I, I think a slightly better translation is for a creature's life is in its blood, and I have given it to you to compare over yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that compares because of the life.
0: Well, that's not really a translation. you just left it as <laughs> untranslated word, right?
1: Oh, for the atonement, right. But I the especially the second phrase, um, the NIV has, it is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And I think a better translation is it is the blood that makes atonement because of the life.
0: Ah, gotcha.
1: So and the NIV actually has a note saying something like that could also be the the translation is in it's an interpretive decision whether the blood is covering your life or whether the blood is used for covering because of the life that is in the blood. And and what we'll see is that when we look at all of the other texts where it's talking about blood and life, uh, it it's going to affirm the second the second translation. <clears throat> so for now, Nate, you read that. This is an explanatory passage in the center of the text, explaining you know the question we've always asked: why blood, right? And it and it actually is one of the times where there is a verse. Answering the question that we <laughs> we all want, it'd be like if in Genesis four starts out and it's like, "Here is why there was a snake in the garden. The snake was in the garden because dot dot dot." Right? It should be like one of the most well understood, well known verses there are. It is <laughs> explaining the entire point of the Book of Leviticus, but. It's taken me a long time to even understand how it it is doing that, right? So to your
0: ears, what are you hearing that verse saying? I mean, it's so hard to get out of the old way of hearing it, which is basically like this is a foreshadowing to Jesus and how like we needed someone's blood to be spilled, you know, because it's life. And I don't even know how it all made sense. It's just like this verse I know, it went with that. It went with that story, and it wasn't really so much about like what was happening in the Old Testament. It was more about like projecting forward to Jesus. You know, that's how I often heard that used. Um, so it's really hard to not, you know, what I'm saying to like break that the,
1: the substitutionary piece. Exactly. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yep. Right. So we're seeing there's a connection between blood and life, and we don't really understand it all, and so it is com- completely understandable
0: how one might see, okay, the meaning here is this is life for life. Because it looks like it with the sacrifices in the Old Testament too, which then just goes, to, it seems like a one for one to what, you know, sacrifice with Jesus, right? So you have this sin that was committed, you know, you should have to spill your blood, but instead the lamb spilled its blood and then projecting forward, Jesus spilled his blood, so that you don't have to. And the the lamb one was just like a temporary thing, like for a short time, it didn't last very long. But Jesus, because he was perfect and all that, like that spilling of blood lasted for a long time. And so now you're good; you don't have to do the the lamb thing anymore. Like that's sort of a, I just don't I don't know how to not think of it like that anymore. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Okay. So I'll just say a couple of things. I've said them all
1: before. We'll repeat them, and then we'll sort of get back to to the blood thing. And none of this is is me pushing my, you know, whatever progressive Christian agenda. This is just what Leviticus says. Leviticus, the system, the tabernacle, all the laws, everything the Torah is talking about, does not deal with what we call sin. The way sin, what we usually talk about, moral offenses... Hurting somebody, killing somebody, stealing their property, cheating on your spouse. Well, in in the terms of the text, it's not cheating on your spouse. It's stealing another man's sexual property. Those things could not be dealt with by any of the blood. And they needed to be dealt with by killing the person to remove that defilement from the camp.
0: Because the goal was to remain close to God be be able to like be literally in God's presence
1: right the defilement needed to to keep from so it happened at multiple levels you when you went to go present an offering to to be near God in the tabernacle and to celebrate participation with with God in a shared space you needed to be clean and if you were really defiled you couldn't even be in the camp Right? So if you became defiled with a skin disease, you had to move outside of the camp until it was cleansed. Then you could move back inside the camp, but not in your tent. And then once it was fully cleansed, you could move back at home in your tent. So there's at an individual level. The, the cleaner you are, the closer you can get. The, the more defiled you are, the further away you have to be. And again, defilement, purity have no moral insinuation whatsoever. This is to do with stuff like dirty feet and giving birth, okay? Good things. (laughs) Good things that happen to people. Uh, Dirty feet. Uh, At the same time, there was always the threat that if the land itself became too polluted, too overwhelmed with defilement, that the land would actually vomit out the nation because it couldn't handle the, the overall pollution level. So on an individual level, you just can't be close if you're defiled. At a, at a communal level, the entire project will be sacrificed if things get too out of hand. And that's why those who had zeal for the Lord or zeal for the house of the Lord were people who were willing to do whatever it takes to purge defilement from the camp, from the land. So this is sort of getting in a theme of exile, which we'll, we'll do a little more on later. But it's said that the reason, we, we did a little bit on the the conquest narratives, right? And the whole giants in the land and they're killing these yep. semi-divine yep. beings, right? There are multiple uh multiple origin stories and multiple explanations for why the conquest happened. Another one given is that the native inhabitants of the land of Canaan had defiled the land so much that it had vomited them out. So the reason Israel was moving in is essentially the land itself had evicted its prior tenants. That's one of the explanations given. So then the threat to Israel is, don't do the same thing or you will be vomited out likewise. And the way Israel's exile is interpreted is that they had become inundated, overwhelmed with defilement. They had become too impure, too polluted, largely from moral impurity that the system couldn't handle. And were therefore exiled from the land. The whole book of Jonah of a whale swallowing a person down into, into, not sorry. The whole book of Jonah and the story of a large fish swallowing a person for three days before vomiting them out again is a story about Israel being exiled from the land. And that is actually this. This is way off track, but. That's what Jesus points to when he talks about giving uh, Israel a sign, the sign of Jonah. He's referencing all of that symbolism there to say that what he will be doing when he dies, goes down to the grave for three days, and then comes up again, is experiencing exile on behalf of all of, of humanity. Okay, it's a bit off track. So the, the idea of defilement, pollution— this, the whole, you know, again, to us modern readers, we look at it and we're like, there's just so much blood, there's blood everywhere, right? <laughs> like, it feels like there's lots of killing. Uh, that blood was only to, to do with ritual impurity. And the minor moral impurity that I said was basically accident, ignorant accidents. Breaking those protocols because you didn't know the rules or didn't know what was happening. It was you're doing something that you weren't aware of. Those sorts of minor hiccups, like you touched a pot that was a holy pot because it was consecrated for the priests, and you were dirty and you touched that pot and didn't know it was holy. Hmm. That is the kind of thing that blood could deal with. If you killed somebody, there was no sacrificial system, there was no uh, there was no ritual, there was no offering, there was no festival that was going to be able to to deal with that. Okay. so that's just fact. okay. So what blood was doing was something different and and here's where we can really start to understand here's where we can really start to see what it was that blood was for. So when you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, again, Genesis 1 and 2 are doing a thousand things all at the same time. You probably remember uh, this line in 2-7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. You remember that? Yeah, the creation of man, how it happened, literally. <laughs> well, according to chapter 2, very different in chapter 1. Don't worry about that.
0: Okay so read that what what's the basic idea that the man was formed but not alive until there was breath that was given to him by God Right
1: So and it's a, a wordplay should I think I've mentioned Adam which just means human so humanity Adam was formed from the adama is is a wordplay for for dust of the ground from adama of the earth So it's where this whole idea of from from dust to dust right it's like from atom to atom basically from dirt to dirt from dirt back to the dirt right which isn't i think obviously if if we're just thinking about where ideas come from quite obviously originating from the basic knowledge that human bodies decompose once they die right and decay back into the ground
0: which they were probably a lot more familiar with than we are we don't see that process you know what i mean
1: Right, we hide them in boxes and bury the boxes and pretend it never happened. Hot take. <laughs> Even, we need to have a side conversation. My mom is currently working on like her plan to petition the state of Oregon to like allow us to bury her in the backyard. It's a it's a whole other conversation. <laughs> okay. Okay. Do you want that left in or taken out? <laughs> that's that's up to the people. So. The, the basic picture, it's trying to paint the symbolism. Remember, there's heaven and earth and the beings in the skies, the heavens, the realm of the heavens, which is the realm of air and airy things that you can't really feel. Those beings are made of air or spirit, right? They are they're ethereal. So you have a sense with the the being matches the realm that they are assigned to they are of the same essence of that realm and man human is made from the very thing that is that gives the earth its its sort of tangible essence the dirt the earthiness right like we literally call dirt earth like we we give the same name <laughs> Of the, the whole planet, well, that's what we call, you know, you have earth in your hands, right? You can feel the earth. So it's, it really is like earthling. Like the human is, is made of earth. And, and then the spirit beings are made of spirit. And it isn't until God breathes life through breath into the man, the human, that it becomes a living being. It actually says this in Genesis one thirty. in Genesis one thirty also, and to all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds in the sky, and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. So what we're gonna see, there is a category of being, that is a a a being that has the breath of life in it, and that category is distinct from beings that do not have the breath of life in it. So there's an article for those of you who are nerdy and want the full background, especially for what we're going to see where there are overlaps with the science of Aristotle and the Greeks and Egyptian, essentially biology, physiology, anatomy. Uh, it's from a guy named Richard Whitekettle. It's called A Study in Scarlet, The Physiology and Treatment of Blood, Breath, and Fish in Ancient Israel. So, just track with this real quick. He's basically pointing out uh, there's a really interesting absence of fish in multiple places uh, in the Levitical codes. So one is that you call eating blood is strictly prohibited, right? Um, but it it's actually specifically eating the blood of the the. Beasts of the field and the birds of the air, that is prohibited. It's never mentioned that you shouldn't eat the blood of fish. And fish are never suggested or allowed as potential offerings from which blood could be used to do atonement. So birds and multiple kinds of clean animals could be used to take their blood, sprinkle it on the altar, and again, I'm making the case that what's happening is creating an insulating layer. For now, we'll just say, and good things happen, okay? The reason is, is because we're seeing in Genesis, fish have blood, but fish do not have the breath of life. Animals, basically similar to what we would call mammals, but I think it also includes reptiles, land creatures and air creatures that humans would have seen and known that they're breathing air, right? They're not breathing underwater. They're breathing air. And if you dip them underwater for too long, they will die. Those are the animals that are considered to have received life via the, the breath of God. So what we're actually seeing is a scientific belief that animals that live on the earth have life in them that came from God and that life is contained in animals' blood. So so just track with this. And, and this is actually just, again, following, for instance, Aristotle's science of arteries and veins, which some of this for me is just sometimes I see this and I'm always... Blown away by how much people learned nearly three thousand years ago.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're always like, how did they? How did they figure that out? You know, like what did they do to figure that out? I'm over. Yeah, I'm blown away by that too. Totally. So some of this we can see
1: and we can think through and track with, and I think it's fascinating. So fish are alive. everybody would have known that. Animals are alive. Humans are alive. If you. Get rid of lots of a human's blood or an animal's blood, it will die, okay? You, you cut something open and it bleeds out. Too much blood leaving the body means dead, okay? That means that life is in that blood. Well, also, if you put an animal underwater so that it can't breathe air, that thing will also die, Okay? So we now have this whole modern science about capillaries and and the way oxygen travels through blood to and from parts of our body. Some of that they knew, Some of that they didn't know. They didn't have microscopes. But from deduction, they're seeing that that breath and blood, are somehow absolutely essential to life. But with a fish, a fish you can take out of the water and it cannot breathe air, right? And of, of course, the ancients don't know that there's oxygen in water that fish are breathing through their gills. Uh, so So through some simple observations and deductions, they are creating a science. That they then assign divine meaning to, right? They're noticing when things die, and and they're assigning life and the origin of life to God. So essentially what we're seeing is that blood is the carrier, the substance that is carrying divine life that the human beings received through God's breath. And what makes this special then, because this isn't just humans, this is the animals have the same thing, is animal blood is carrying the divine life, but humans also have blood in them, which means we have stumbled upon a substance that humans can be in the most intimate contact with, right? It's, It's literally in our bodies in a safe manner. And yet we think, is actually semi-divine, right? The idea is that God breathed into the blood God's own life, meaning this is a substance that is part divine and part human and is a perfectly compatible substance on both sides. You you tracking here?
0: Yes. Uh, So it's given by God. And... It's the only thing that controls the life because they're seeing a, a human, land creatures, birds of the air. You put them in water. They can't breathe. No life. Blood comes out too much. No life. So those things are given by God and control life and death. And so they are these kind of special substances.
1: Right. And particularly special because the problem that needs to be overcome is the danger of contact. And so there is a, a precedent, a belief for some kinds of substances which can allow closer and closer levels of contact. But if you think about it, there's an intrinsic problem. So I mentioned just with a high priest to come into the temple one day a year required a special garment, a special recipe to create a special sacred oil, and the blood of an animal to be doused on the priest's body. But the entire nation of Israel, which these texts at point claim is in the millions, right? Whether that's symbolism or why that number, whatever, that's for another day. A very large group of people, according to the story, is all supposed to be a nation of priests that is close to God. There is, a, there is a critical scale issue. And so one of the things you see is one of the only stories uh, elsewhere where blood is actually applied to human beings is this story that scholars love to argue about in Exodus 24, where it's essentially the beginning of life with God and Israel living together. And the story claims that in the first moment they all come together on the the holy mountain on Sinai, Moses killed some animals, took blood, and covered the entire nation. That's, That's what the story says, okay? And you're reading the story going, like, how in the world, right? Like, you just said thousands upon thousands of people fled from Egypt, and now Moses covered every one of them in blood so that they could be close to God. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. So part of what it's doing is, is it's raising attention to this issue. So you have two ways you can go about this, right? You have one God and thousands of people. One way is you try to individually play whack-a-mole and clean and consecrate every human being with, with cleansing rituals and the and the chemicals, the substances used to, to cleanse defilement, make people clean and then using the other substances like oil and blood that can insulate people, make them holy, you're going to do that one at a time every time, for instance, someone goes poop, <laughs> right? When we think about just the everyday stuff, dirt, feces, regular bodily fluids, sex, all of these things were, were good, normal things that made people defiled. You just realize it's like, this, this is a futile project, right? It seems, when you, when you get into the details, it seems like it would be impossible to do with 10 people, let alone thousands. So what Leviticus 17 is saying is that blood is, is a gift from God that is given specifically to be used on the altar. From this point on, blood is always connected to the altar, that is where it is a special a, that is where it is especially useful that is what god has given them to the right to kill animals for is to use blood on the altar so that it's actually prohibited if anybody kills animals and doesn't use the blood for the altar it's actually considered bloodshed you have taken an animal's life you have taken the divine life in a way that wasn't what this has been given for The logic is the altar is the main barrier between God and the people. The altar was in the doorway of the tent. And because blood is a two-way insulating substance, rather than going and playing whack-a-mole and covering every single individual all the time, you can cover the object that is in between God and the people. Gotcha. And so God can come close on God's side and humans can come close on humanity's side. Both can come near on opposite sides of this altar. That is the power. That is the possibility presented by the blood. It's all about scale.
0: So does this have anything to do then with covering... Jesus covering like one time and everyone's covered kind of thing or?
1: Yeah. So what we're going to see is everything that the New Testament claims Jesus' death accomplished, Jesus was already doing long before he died. So Jesus was cleansing people, right? The woman touches his cloak, the bleeding woman, touches just a part of Jesus' clothes and is immediately healed and cleansed. He goes around, basically what we're watching—we'll explain this more next time—I think one of the best ways to read the Gospels is they are depictions of a science experiment. And the experiment is what happens if a substance akin to blood, that is, a compatible substance in which God and humanity can come together in the same substance— where God, God can touch Jesus, God can be in Jesus, and human beings can touch Jesus. What happens? And we watch all these stories about what happens, <laughs> and it's healing, cleansing. Demons get cast out. Demons, which are called impure spirits, defiling spirits, get cast out so that people can be made clean people's sins are forgiven, and then even the disciples are able to go and and replicate all of those results, something churches don't talk about very often, long before Jesus dies. So the, the way the New Testament presents the meaning of Jesus' death is—and this is complicated, <laughs> we'll get into the details next time—is that What Jesus' death was to Jesus' life is what the day of Yom Kippur was to the rest of the Levitical system. So so let me explain that. The the blood specifically was given to be used on the altar and the the Yom Kippur annual day where the entire tabernacle was re-coated with blood to be re-insulated that was the process of taking the, the entire cleansing and consecrating, remember, to, to make something clean and then make it holy, to do that to scale for the entire nation. It was a mass scale version of what could happen with other kinds of substances in other ways at an individual level, but would have just taken forever. It would have been this impossibly futile project to do it one case at a time. What the gospels show is Jesus is capable of cleansing and consecrating and healing anything Jesus touches. But Jesus just isn't going to be able to touch the whole world. Jesus won't even have time to, to heal and take care of all of the issues he sees just in Judea.
0: So we need more people that are then contagious to go out and do those things in the same spirit. I think I see where you're going with this. And that's, that's sort of what I want to get into next time is like the, okay, you mentioned, this is going to be more beautiful. This is going to be better. It's, I kind of see a little bit of that, but I didn't, I didn't feel that. this I'm like, okay, clearly how is this better? No. I, so just think
1: about it And I, I, we won't get into more. I, I just, so, so here's the case to summarize. We always say like, why did God need blood? Right? Like why the blood, why was the blood necessary? Blood was only nece- blood wasn't necessary. Blood was especially useful because it could scale out to a massive level to include everyone, what otherwise would have been by necessity, by limitation, an exclusive system. And so the same question. Uh, this is just a taste of where this is better. The same why the blood question, which so often has ended up in the, because Jesus had to pay the price for our sins because God wanted to punish us because God was angry answer, is actually why the blood is because Jesus was only desiring to accomplish an absolutely universal atonement. So the whole debate over, over universal versus limited atonement, I'll, I'll prove this later, Jesus only died because the idea of limited atonement was so heartbreaking that Jesus was willing to die to make sure that every single person in the entire world was cleansed and able to come close to God. So that, that is why blood— Now, the thing, just, I mean, for a second, like, again, I'll prove that, but that's the same question, right, which Calvinists have have taken as a justification for why a lot of people weren't saved or, or Jesus's blood didn't actually end up atoning for a lot of people. If we come at this from a different angle, realize more of what the biblical writers were actually talking about, we'll realize the blood itself, the fact of of blood, and Jesus's uh, likening Jesus's blood to the blood offered in the day of atonement, is the proof that Jesus's atonement was absolutely universal, and the Calvinistic idea of limited atonement is like entirely blasphemous to the to the uh, New Testament Gospels. So, I
0: know you, I know you could get on board with that, Nate. That is better. That is slightly better. And we'll expand on that. We'll expand on that and get into how this is more beautiful next time. Thanks for being on this journey with us. We uh, It's a re- it's a growing community, and we're so thankful that you're here and that we can all feel less alone together. And special thanks to all our patrons that help make this show possible. You can give as well at patreon.com slash almost heretical. All right, we'll catch you next time. Peace.